0: Hello what's going on, Reinforced Running Podcast. My name is Rich Ryan. Today, we have our quarterly Q&A. We are in the Q for 2022, so we got a Q&A coming for yeah. So in this episode, we're going to talk about ways to kind of dive, uh, change your DECA training and how to get the best results if you are approaching it from a compromised running standpoint or should you focus on more like your DECA strong and your station work. Very simple question, complicated answer. So we get into that. Then we talk a little bit about pre-race nutrition, about how what to eat, when to eat it, all that. We'll talk about some substitutions for how to do your sled push and your ski erg that is going to reflect the most accurate most accurately toward your race. And then we talk a little bit about off-season strength gaining for an OCR athlete. So thank you for everybody who did. Chime in with some questions. Love reading these super great, awesome questions. Always good ones. You guys are really thinking about this stuff. Makes me think about it. Really, really appreciate that. Also, thanks for hanging tight. Missed an episode last week sometime around mid-October. That's where I will not release an episode. And we're just going to do this every year. So mark it on the calendar, mid-October sometime. Expect not to have an episode from me. Last episode that I missed was October a year ago for my wedding this year. Missed it for my anniversary. So that's when I'm taking off, taking off that day. But I'm happy to be back bringing this to you. More interviews coming for you for the rest of the year, the rest of this Q4. So thanks again for listening. If you like this, hook it up with a review. Make sure you're subscribing, share this with a friend. Got some good stuff coming for you. Let's get into it QA. All right. I'm on and it's on. We are going to talk about a couple different things when it comes to hybrid training, some nutrition talk, a little bit of OCR off-season talk. So let's just do it. First question comes from Jack B. No relation to John B., the famed R&B singer of the early 2000s, late 90s. Look him up. It's worth your while. So question here is, if you want to improve your deck of fit, should you improve more on incrementally improving your stations or kind of work more in that compromised running area, more like blending everything together? So this is a a really, really good question, and something I've been thinking about quite a bit of late because it would seem simple, right? If you just kind of put your all the pieces together and improve, the actual specific demands of the event, like that should be where you're going to get the most results. And I think that that could be the case, but just for a very short amount of time, I think that if you're going to be working on specifically compromised running, it should be within like four to six weeks leading into your event, no longer than like eight to 12. If you're, if your training block is consistently just work of compromised running. So say row 500 meters, run 400 meters, ski 500 meters, row for 100 meters and just like kind of just like doing that re- repetitively if you do that like in tempo fashion a little bit longer, you can do a little bit shorter in terms of like threshold pace or like interval pace where you're going much faster. You could do that and you will get better t- to a certain extent, but it seems like you will definitely plateau pretty pretty quickly with that. And and in, in order to really get your best results when it comes to decafit, I believe that the station work is is pivotal, and we're seeing that at the top right now with athletes like Ryan Kent and Ryan Shattag, who are able to do their station work during a deca fit even faster than what they could do in a deca strong. So they're able to recover a little bit on the running and, it, and and their station work is better than everybody else's because they come into that and they're feeling ready and they can really kind of hammer it. So you really need to work on that station work on that like deca strong area to improve. So it has to be some sort of combination. Both things. So, I would kind of recommend splitting the two different modalities into a little bit more frequency of intensity. And this is also something that I've been thinking about quite a bit. And I'm going to do some kind of recap or uh, video when it comes to like my own specific training and what I've been thinking about when uh, for like how to really prepare for these hybrid events and how what that means. Traditionally, what we think of in terms of how much frequency we would need for an endurance athlete versus this hybrids hybrid space, like the, like how much more intensity is appropriate versus how much aerobic uh, base and building do we need to have and recovery do we need to have to really get the best results. So I think that we could kind of increase that frequency a little bit more. You know, if you think traditionally 80, 20 is kind of like this the rule of thumb standard principle for endurance training, right? Like 20% of your work should be hard. 80% should be easy just to like reduce it to its most simple explanation of that concept. I think that works really, really well for, uh, I think it works really well for OCR. I think it works really well for running in particular for a very specific running endurance event, but because the modalities are split up so much in hybrid, hybrid training, like muscularly, I don't think you're going to get beat down as much as you would for just running or OCR, which is basically just running, (laughs) just running like through trails or whatever. The the impact and the recovery that you need muscularly, I think you need to kind of lean into that recovery a lot more than you do systemically. I think you you get to a point where you might overwork if you are not sleeping well, you're not eating well, and just like everything will kind of be fried and just kind of build this like overall fatigue that might bring you down if you are just doing so much more intensity. But I think that like threshold is higher than if you were just running by itself. So being able to kind of split things up and adding a little bit more frequency of intensity into your training, I think is kind of the answer for this, right? So like doing both. So having a day or two where you are working specifically on say DECA strong or DECA mile, if that's another thing that you're kind of qualified for. So working very short intervals at very high intensity and playing with the rest. So playing with the rest, meaning like the closer you get to an event, the shorter you're going to want that recovery, the further out and like the more you can increase that intensity of the workout, the longer the rest you could take just so you can really, really hammer it. But when we're getting closer to the demands of like a DECA strong or something like that, something that would be a two to four minute interval, I think at the longest, kind of moving through the different stations and then only taking 30 to 50 seconds of rest. So by the time you get to that second, third, fourth interval, you are uh, really kind of having to work for it. You're really fighting off the lactic takeover. You're in over your head a little bit. And that's the feeling that you are going to have during a DECA strong, probably at, Skier, if you've overdone it a little bit, and definitely at the bike or after the bike, if you uh, are a little bit more paced out, you're going to have to deal with this lactic takeover. And so you're going to have to improve the the way that your your body is able to remove the lactic byproduct. So working at that very high level is just going to kind of flood that system with this lactate that is essentially going to try to slow you down. there's a tolerance you can build up to a certain extent. So doing that, those type of workouts, again six to eight weeks out to help work on your deck of strong I think is a a great place to go and on the other side of things kind of working on a much slower not much slower (laughs) slower than the intensity that you're doing in those two to four minute intervals but kind of stretching them to three to five to seven to ten and kind of being more in that like threshold type of area when it comes to your your compromise running work. And I like to lean specifically on the energy develop the the the, the what are we gonna call these the stations, the machine stations, <laughs> just to make them simple. They're the ones that you can exponentially put out more effort and the fatigue will increase with it. So say if you are talking about the ski erg versus the lunges or box stepovers, if you go a full on sprint for thirty seconds on, or say for a minute on the rower, and then you do a full sprint for a minute on box stepovers, you're going to be in much worse shape coming off of the row when going into that next run. So I like to spend a lot of time running in and out of the machines, uh, row ski bike and the tank actually is another one that you could put a lot of time on. And that way, just to kind of get familiar with what that's going to feel like and to understand what those demands are going to feel like after. So you could approach this a couple of ways. Again, intervals between three to 10 minutes, I think with shorter rest between 30 and two minutes, 30 seconds and two minutes would be a good place for this. So making the short, the rest shorter, obviously with the interval being, being shorter. And then that way, Working at this threshold pace, which should be something where you can kind of hold on for an hour, anywhere from like 50 minutes to uh, 70 minutes should be what this pace kind of feels like. So it's comfortable, but hard. It's not something you want to do, but you can do. And that way you can amass a lot of volume in these specific domains of DECA or as it would even work for high rocks. So that way you can kind of work on both ends of the spectrum. Very fast. So you're good at the skill work and the transition work of a deck of strong and also uh, more familiar with the compromised feeling that you're going to get during the actual race of a deck of fit. Because one thing that can happen f- if you're just working specifically on stations is that you might improve your station work and whether, and let, let's, again, let's just lean on the machines here. So say you do some sort of row or ski or biking block, right? To improve your high end ability on those machines. And so you take your, I don't know, let's just say you take your 2K from averaging 155s on the rower and you take it down to 148s for 2K over the time. And you're feeling good about that. You you're know that your strength is, on those machines is really coming along. Just because like you can do that doesn't mean you should because it will really hamper your running. <laughs> like it just because you're better at rowing doesn't mean the running is going to be better after unless you pace yourself well in that row. So say you were doing a 155 on your row for a deck of fit and now you feel comfortable that you could do a 148, but you come off and you feel. Uh, even worse than what you would have before just that you're 155 because you're expending so a lot more energy. You're going to have to uh, to generate a lot more power. And so that's going to create a little bit more fatigue. So being able to take the time in training to go back to those threshold workouts where you are spending a lot of time on the rower and then running right after you can then kind of play around with the paces as well and seeing what that kind of does to your run after each uh, specific targeted machine station. Right. So that's, that's where you can kind of get trapped a little bit. If you're like, I just need to get really good at my deck of strong or really good at rowing or really good at skiing, because like, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. And that will really kind of hamper. So hamper your, your efforts and can kind of blow you up quicker than you think, even though you feel like, even though you are in better shape, you might overextend yourself on the different stations, which is going to ultimately hurt your long-term performance. So, that that's kind of where I, I would say for this, it's like just like uh, it's both. <laughs> Working on your deca strong will definitely make you better and and faster at your deca fit. If you're going to ultimately run the best deca fit that you possibly can, you need to know how to do the deca strong and what it's going to feel like and and how those things are going to feel stacked on top of each other and and the different ways to kind of approach the deca strong. I, I truly believe that if like that's the best way that you're going to maximize your your performance with deca fit is to also get good at deca strong but if you're just getting good at deca strong it might damper your or hamper your uh results because you are getting a little bit too confident in the stations and you're overexerting on them so ideally getting better at deca strong and then kind of picking a middle ground of pacing between what you do in your threshold and what you do in your high intensity work should be the place to go. So it doesn't take as much out of your running as it would have because you are a little bit better at it and that you just have a good sense of where to be. So again, something a lot I've been thinking a lot about working in progress quite a bit with this, just to make sure that we're covering all of our, our bases and like how much to do and when to do it. But that that's kind of my idea right now. And I think it's like the best approach that I've come across so far as opposed to just hammering, the same race pace intervals. Cause if you start just doing race pace intervals, which again, there is definitely a place for that. I would probably, again, three to four weeks out from a main event and uh, maybe once a week, kind of simulating the exact demands, but you're going to be able to do, you'll, you'll do way less of the amount of volume that you could do. If if you're just doing race specific demands, just because of how, how tired you're going to get, like just to, again, just to make it as simple as possible. You're just going to get more tired running faster and doing the stations faster that you won't be able to amass enough volume to really get familiar with the stations and with familiar with how it feels after the stations. So reducing the volume on those threshold, reducing the intensity on the threshold side of things and really ramping it up on the DECA strong side of things. And then blending it three to five weeks out from an event. And that could be uh, a SIM, or it could be some sort of broken-up sim. Uh, I, that, to me, makes the most sense when it comes to like understanding where to spend your time when it comes to uh, DECA training on the on the different spectrums. So I hope that's helpful. I'm really excited to see how things kind of play out for DECA World Championships. That's coming up in about a month, a little bit, about a month from what I'm recording today. So if you are going to be there, this is where the time you might want to start to blend some things together just once a week again it's easy to want to do it two times a week but again you know, that's going to reduce the amount of volume you could do within the workouts and also how it will probably reduce the frequency as well because those workouts will be so hard so i do that once a week and still keep the frequency of intensity high on the deca strong stuff and maybe one day of uh deca threshold stuff as well and then one race specific with these with about four weeks coming into it so Let's move on. So I had a couple, I made a request for a, some nutrition type questions, a couple of similar themes kind of popped up with, uh, when it comes to nutrition and it seems like pre race or pre workout nutrition is uh, a pretty common theme here. And this isn't exactly rocket science when it comes to this. I think it's pretty simple and it gets overthought sometimes. And like the most simple, advice for this is usually the best when it comes to just eat what you would typically eat as long as you're just familiar. And I think this is pretty common uh, advice that that should be uh, shared and, or should be like practiced across the board in terms of just consistency. And if that should be something that you are striving toward in your regular life as well, like being consistent with what you are eating regardless of the amounts or the, um, or, or like what type of food we're talking about or, or like however it kind of comes through just the consistency. So you understand like what it feels like when you are eating something and how that will affect your workout later that day or how it will affect your workouts later that week or how it makes you feel like how like it, it affects your digestive system and how that kind of plays out long-term. You don't really know and you won't really know unless you are very consistent with, What you, with the macros, the micros, how you're getting it in like time of day, everything should be consistent. And this is the most simple kind of advice I could give that would probably be the most bang for your buck to when it comes to nutrition, it really gets overthought is what I've found. And I've been there myself quite a bit where like, is this qual is the quality of the suit up to standard is the. Uh, structure of the food that I'm eating, what I, what I feel like it should be, like how much, what's the ratio of protein to carbs and the timing and this and that and how much does it really matter? It seems very little (laughs) in my opinion, from the coaching that I've done from my own personal practice, like, like what you're eating means way less than like how, like then how it makes you feel and how you know it makes you feel. And if you're consistent across the board every day, every week, Then you're going to have a better idea of what it, how you'd feel if you ate eggs for breakfast versus oatmeal for breakfast and how that means for your workout later in the day or tomorrow or whatever. So across the board, being consistent is probably the number one thing you can do with your nutrition and it's boring and it's hard. There's a lot of impulses that kind of come with eating and a lot of pressure when it comes to, uh, with what you're eating based on just social things or however you uh, celebrate this part of your life. It's hard to be consistent, but it's also very simple. (laughs) It's like the most simple thing, eating the same thing every single day at the exact same time is pretty freaking simple. And then when you do that, you, and when you deviate once a week or whatever, once or twice a week, you'll know how it makes you feel and you be a little bit more attuned with it. But if everything's different every single time, every single day, then you're, you're going to have no idea. And then you're going to be looking for these more complicated uh, solutions like, oh, should I be eating more spinach? <laughs> should, sh- is it is it the uh, processing of this food that is making me feel bad? It's like it's hard to tell. If everything's a disaster all the time, if everything is coming in in different different waves and you don't really know how to – like what's happening when you're getting in and you can't like draw a line back to, oh, this was out of my typical practice, so I can expect to feel this way or learning that you're feeling that way once you do move out of your typical practice. So across the board, consistency is key with nutrition the same way that it is for your training and basically uh, everything else, (laughs) everything else when it comes to making improvements, but some more practical like hands-on advice that I could give for some sort of pre race nutrition is to be focusing more on the carb heavy type of things. And a lot of this matters with the timing and we're seeing a lot with these high rocks events. Now they are starting much later in the day. So it kind of throws a different wrench into this, A whole issue because like, okay, I always work out at 6am. So I don't eat or I eat a pop tart or whatever it is. And then now my race is at 2pm and I have like several chances to get a meal in. So I would really focus specifically on the carbohydrates that you're taking in, in terms of quantity and quality and how, and like where that relates to your race. So if it's three hours or so away from the race you, I would suggest you take up to 25 to 45 grams of carbohydrates and that should be something that's a little bit more simple um, if if you're closer to the three to four hour range uh, a slower digesting, carbohydrate would be fine. Something that would be like more like oatmeal or uh, some sort of fibrous fruit that you might like, like a but banana or an apple or something like that. I think that is a good place to start. And in that same, in the same vein and with protein and fats, it doesn't matter as much. Fats almost don't matter at all when it comes to performance here and you can get those fats in later in the day but i really wouldn't exceed 10 grams of fat per your for your like pre-race or pre-workout meal just because it takes like it just takes a longer for that to digest and same with protein protein will sit and, and will take a lot more energy to get through your system um, at the same time though if depending on the Source of protein, like if you're taking in some sort of dairy or if it's uh, like a a shake or something that is going to be easier for your body to digest, I think 10 to 20 grams is where I would stay, 20 at the most. And you know, most protein bars uh, at most are going to have 20, unless it's like one of those crazy old school ones that are like 500 calories and like a huge brick of like metrics, met met RX bars, like those things. Don't eat those, (laughs) eat those later in the day, uh, to help to get your protein up before race, keep it under 20 grams. I think that your gut will be happy for that because really anything over that will just take a little bit longer to digest. And and chances are, if you're noticing, there's probably pretty little, uh, if you have up to three hours or so before the race, But that'd be a good target where I would look three to four hours. I try for, I try for four, but it's, uh, sometimes with the races just being early, it doesn't make, uh, it wouldn't make as much sense to get up earlier and eat something where really these, the races, uh, that I've been doing don't necessarily need that much, uh, food in the morning <laughs> to help get me through the event. Uh, a lot of times we'll be fine, especially in a deck of fit. Yeah. You, know, you could probably, you could definitely do it just like fasted in a deck of fit and you'd just, and you'd be completely fine. Um, based off of the, as long as you ate yesterday, <laughs> so that would kind of be where I'd be. So types of, and when it comes to types of carbs, again, steering kind of away from more heavier grains, things like cereal, things like pop tarts, honestly, I think a banana would be fine because it is, it's still fibrous, but not, not, not not crazy. Something like a date fruit juice is a really great, but once you get the fruit, uh, when it's juiced, it loses its fiber content. Things like baby food. This is something I've talked about before, but baby food's really good because it's, Real food for the most part, I think, like whenever you look at the the nutrition of uh, the ingredients in baby food, it's just like pureed sweet potatoes. And again, the fiber stripped down a little bit and it just ends up being uh, a really good carbohydrate source. If you don't want to just have liquid carbs or something that's a little bit more processed or like something that is a little bit uh, more in like refined sugar, which if you want to stay away from that, a lot of times the more complex sugars are which – is is a whole different thing but the more complex sugars take a little bit longer uh to break down like that would be uh, sucrose that would you'd find in your fruit whereas opposed to opposed to some like these refined sugars that will kind of spike your the insulin in your, in your system and and will just kind of play with the hormones a little bit more if that is really a concern of yours then moving into um then like the baby food, the real fruit, uh, dates, things like that would be your best bet. I personally haven't ever been able to notice how I feel, but from a performance standpoint, if I'm just eating simple sugars, like that could be even just like a gel, uh, like like I mentioned, Pop-Tarts, like these things that are gonna be more on the sugary end, cereals, some cereals that are pretty sugary. uh, From a performance standpoint, I've never noticed that playing with my energy levels at all. Because ultimately we're looking for the available... Glucose to uh, help our help our system run, help our muscles fire, and help us move. So we have that actual energy. And at the end of the day, that no matter what type the carbohydrate is, that is, you're going to get that result. The result of the energy, regardless of the types of carbohydrates, will you'll still get. And what happens internally with your hormones and and and, and this or that, like that is certainly things that is certainly a place where the food quality does change things, but from a performance standpoint, in my opinion, it doesn't really matter. Uh, So that could be just something that you could keep in mind. If you want to have a lifestyle and uh, a style of food that you want to continue to eat, then do that consistently. And like, you can lead, like use that to guide you toward what you run race with pre-race. But ultimately I don't think it matters that much. 20, to 50 carbohydrates, I think is a great place to be 10 to 20 grams of protein. Protein sources, again, if you want to be – if you're eating dairy, if you're eating animal products, like I think that's probably the fastest, quickest way to kind of get that through if it doesn't give you any gut or digestive issues. The more complex ones like veggie proteins aren't great in terms of like processing. It takes a while for it to kind of get through. And the, the uh, amino acid profile is less. Uh, that's a whole different thing. I don't even know why I mentioned that. That's, a, that's, that's like more for like the recovery standpoint of things in terms of breaking things down. If it's a veggie protein – uh powder it'll probably get through the same as a whey but i like like even like a chicken <laughs> or like steak probably won't want to do that might sit and, and might need to, uh, take a while to break down the actual uh real formation of the food and fats keep it pretty low i would say five to ten grams of fat is enough um, you don't need a huge scoop of peanut butter that really doesn't add anything to your what you need in terms of performance if sometimes you know foods just come with fats and things that kind of if you're eating a cliff bar or a or whatever it is like a lot of things that are put in there you're, they're gonna add some fats because tastes great And lots of sometimes it could be like the binding agent as well in that but I wouldn't go out of your way to eat like a lot of bacon or eat a lot of peanut butter or something like that so if that makes sense I uh, got a question about actual pre-workout if uh, if I would recommend uh, like a pre-workout shake before The, uh, a race. And again, same thing. If you do take pre-workout before you work out, like do it (laughs) really, when you look at what these pre-workouts are, they're a little weird because they're super processed and there's all kind of mixed together and there's like artificial dyes and flavors and things in in that of that nature. But like the main things that you're going to get the actual performance benefit from is the creatine, which Your creatine, I've done, uh, I did a deep dive on creatine, I think two Q and A's ago. So you can kind of take, go ahead and uh, listen back to that one to get a good idea of what creatine does for you, but creatine beta alanine, they're both going to be in most pre-workouts and they're going to, and that's something that kind of stores in your system. So if you're taking a one-off, like just before a race, like you're probably not going to get the benefits of it because it doesn't need to kind of be stored up and available and just like one usage. Like one dosage of both of those things won't really do it. And ultimately what they do, they just kind of help. Um, they're just like, they they just kind of assist in moving things at a high rate. Changes of you noticing very small. The main thing that a pre-workout gives you is a stimulant. And usually in the form of a shitload of caffeine, uh, anywhere between 200 and 300 milligrams of caffeine is where most pre-work, pre-workouts are going to be 300s a ton, 200. I mean, a lot of us probably take in that much anyway from our our typical habits of, of just drinking coffee or just drinking whatever in the morning to get us going. If that's some sort of energy drink or whatever it is that we'd like to get us going, we're probably taking in that much anyway. So um, I think that you would be fine from that stimulus. It's just like everything kind of comes in at once with taking pre-workout. I personally don't do that because I kind of build my own. I'll take a, a, a beta alanine and a creatine powder, flavorless, uh, just regular powder, and just kind of mix it. And then I just drink coffee and that's my, that's the stimulant because it is ultimately the same thing. So actual pre-workout. Sure. I would just, the, the reason I don't take pre-workout is because I do drink coffee and I would like to drink coffee and I, I'm not interested in replacing my coffee with a pre-workout. And if you're doing both, it's probably going to start messing with your sleep a little bit or like punching your anxiety up a little bit higher kind of keeping everything on high alert a little bit more than needs to be so if you're doing both like be careful or like do half doses of both of all of those things so for actual pre-workout before a race like yeah sure (laughs) i've done it before and i would definitely um and i'm always going to have some sort of caffeine before the fact of of these of a a race or a really hard workout if that's something that that you're interested in um Okay, let's move along. So I had a couple questions on substitutions in terms of training for Hyrox and Decafit, it sounds like. So the first one I think is a little bit more common uh, than others. Actually, let's let's do the sled push. So the sub for the sled push, this question is like, if you don't have a sled, if you have some sort of different type of sled, like how can you simulate the demands of – the of a high rocks that's what we'll talk about in particular now it would be easier for the the sled in the in, in decafit the torque sled that very much is focused on your legs and how you are able to kind of push and and kind of what muscle groups you're going to use to move that thing and what kind of muscular endurance you can develop to push that thing because it, it's on magnetic resistance it's not hard to push a little bit but it's hard to push for a long time and it just ends up kind of filling up your legs a little bit and and kind of giving you a little bit of that that pumpy feeling by the time you come out of it it's it's challenging to run or during it it just feels like you should slow down <laughs> so that's like with that tank you can kind of get that effect a bunch of different ways even if you just like have like like putting your this is, this was a punishment we used to have to do in basketball. Someone like got in trouble or something like that. Like having a towel and holding a towel with your hands against the floor and then having like your butt in the air and just like running up and down a field. A, a gym used to go to near Philly would do something like that where they'd push a sandbag and it was just like brutal. Like you do that and you kind of slide a, a sandbag across the ground. That's a very similar feel to what you're going to get for Decafit. that's gonna be easy to simulate that sort of feeling. You can even even get that on like a bike, just like hammering at a bike and coming off and trying to run. Like it's gonna be pretty similar. But for high rocks, there's a lot, a uh, uh, different demand. There's a, a whole different component of a high rock sled that is outside of just like the muscular endurance piece. So when we want to put like so there's not going to be a great answer on like how to sub, this, sub a sled. And I've had some people kind of reach out asking like if a torque tank would be similar. And because, again, you're going to get the muscular endurance piece, but there's a huge element of bracing in your upper body and just like in your intra abdominals and just like really getting as tight as you possibly can in your entire upper body that inhibits blood flow. It, it, it's harder to breathe. It just makes it much more challenging on the bracing on your upper body than just the muscular endurance of the lower body. So it's something you do need to account for if you are just pushing a torque tank or if you are um, trying to make do with whatever other kind of tank that you have or sled that you have. This could even be the case for if you're pushing like a prowler or you have turf that is just easy to slide over. If it's just moving and you can breathe really well, it's probably not going to hit the mark when you're pushing the sled in the high rocks because you're bracing so, so much through your core, your, your back and like your chest and like your, your arms, even like everything's bracing really hard. So again, it constricts that blood flow. So when you come up, it's like a rush of blood starts to shuttle through your upper, upper body. And that's when you can kind of get that wooziness from that sled. Like you stand up and be like, Oh boy. And it's because like the blood is all showing all at once. So like that big bracing that you need to take on for the sled is something you're just not going to get if you're doing uh the, the like some of these standard substitutions so that's one thing that we do want to consider how to brace our upper body and really push into the sled i'll talk about a couple ways that we can kind of uh that we can simulate that in in a second and another thing that the, the sled does to you in high rocks is it makes it really hard to run after. And that's a, th- a lot because of the blood flow piece. And once you start running after maybe that first lap or uh, like the first half a lap, things kind of come back. Like it can definitely ruin a race mentally and physically. Like if you're just not right on the muscular endurance side, but at this point of high rocks training, most of us know like that we need to really kind of beat up our legs and be able to run with beat up legs. But the, the sled, it's going to make it a little bit harder to breathe and a little bit harder to move because of that intra abdominal pressure that you do need. So one way to really beat up your legs, obviously, is to do a lot of leg work and like, try to simulate how that how the leg work then feels into the running. The only problem with that is that with the sled, there's no eccentric loading or or like lowering really that much at all. Like you, And when we inflict. When we get to soreness, it's from some sort of inflicted damage to our muscles, and that comes a lot of times from. Most of the time from eccentric loading and either trying to resist something lowering you, like say on a back, so if you had something very heavy on your back and you were like walking with it, like that might create some, you're going to have to resist that eccentric loading and you're probably going to get a little bit of that eccentric lowering, which will then create little tears in your muscle fibers. And that's what basically what soreness is. On a sled, we don't really get that, right? Like when you stop pushing the sled, there's no force pushing back against you, and there's not a ton of lowering. You step forward and you press, so you're concentrically driving through your muscle. You're driving your muscle concentrically to move that sled forward in a horizontal plane as opposed to a vertical. Like A vertical would be more like the lunge or the wall balls where you are actually need to stop the force of the weight from coming down and, and lower yourself into a position to count as a rep just by the nature of those uh those two movements so after a high rocks you're probably going to be sore but mostly it's going to be your quads and your glutes and it's probably going to be because of the lunges and the wall balls you're probably not going to be too sore from the sled you're going to be dead from the sled during the race that's for sure but in terms of soreness it's from those back two stations so trying to sub a sled with leg work like squats lunges Um, wall balls or whatever, it's not going to meet the, all the demands. It may help your compromise running piece. And if that's something, if like strength isn't, isn't the problem, if you're a big beast and the weight itself is not that heavy, then yeah, like beating up your legs and running, I think would be a good, uh, would be a good substitution for the sled. But if you're asking how to sub the sled, if you don't have one, you're probably not one of these big, strong beast. You probably need some time on that, on that sled. So one thing we want to make sure we are accounting for is that is not doing too much of that eccentric loading and too much damage to it, mostly because it's going to reduce the amount of work we can do once we get in uh, on that day and after that day. So I would kind of steer away from doing things like just like lunges. Lunges seem like the lunges or squats and then running would seem like the logical spot. But I would kind of steer away from from that just because it's too much eccentric loading. And in terms of and 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 if you're doing like lunges or squats, the weight would have to be super heavy to replicate what you get in that that like bracing in your upper body. Like I would say you probably need about 70% of what your back squat is like, this is just a straight up guess. <laughs> like it's there's no, nothing qualitative about this. I'm just, I'm just guessing about like what it kind of feels like during a squat and what it feels like during pushing that sled and how it feels in terms of bracing. I would say you, you would probably need 70% of what your one rep max back squat is to really simulate that internal pressure that you're going to need to engage in during the sled push, which again, which would be too heavy to do that much work. to do four minutes of work that would be crazy (laughs) that would be like a a, almost an impossible task when it comes to uh a a back squat and then you'd be so wrecked after it like you probably could run a little bit but not really and then you wouldn't want to do anything after that so because of just like how beat up and how much damage that you inflict in that one specific set so i would try to piece these things together and in order to really kind of replicate that. So there's a lot of different ways to kind of play around with this. I've never done, I've done things something similar, but I've always tried to seek out sleds no matter where, where I needed to go. Like I've, I've gone to pretty stupid extreme amount of lengths to find myself a sled, a specific sled, like the actual like rogue dogs, sled, like not a prowler, not like uh yeah, I guess that's, a main like not a torque tank, a specific sled that is all the ground contact. I go out of my way to get that. But if you just, if it's just not in the works, uh, just based off of whatever resources you have, then, yeah, I'll try to piece these things together. So if you're looking to develop that muscular endurance with some sort of just concentric loading the torque tank works really well right that could work or any type of light thing that you have to push could also work like i mentioned like kind of getting into that lower hands on the ground position and running will help develop your uh, muscular endurance in your quads and honestly just like biking biking or rowing can really help beat up those lower legs. And if you just crank, crank the resistance really high on something like a concept Two bike, or even like a spin bike, I think would work really well for this where you can kind of blow your legs up pretty well. That's going to be the closest that the, that you're going to feel in terms of the fatigue in your actual legs, when it comes to resisting the lactic takeover in and like the kind of that pumpiness that you would feel it is just spending time hammering at your legs with something that's more concentric. So biking, like they said, that sled kind of maybe uphill running, uphill running, I think would be also pretty helpful. And then I would do things like heavy carries. <clears throat> and that would mean like a super heavy farmer's carry and not like you can't get heavy enough with those, uh, like just carrying dumbbells or kettlebells. It has to be like those farmer's handles that you pick up and you have to brace really hard through your obliques. But even on that, you're missing a lot of like the upper, upper, uh, abdominal like your central abdominals and like up up toward your chest and shoulders so something like a yoke carry if you have those that a yoke is the machine is like the structure that in a deck of it now that we put the dead ball over but basically you, it's it's loaded from the ground so you can pick it up easier like a heavy a heavy barbell right like if you take it off the rack and like walk with it in the front rack or back rack position is kind of what i'm talking about but then like if say you're loading up 300 pounds to walk uh, with a barbell, you'd have to get to a spot and like kind of turn it or you have to drop it. And then like you'd have to either be able to clean that much, which you probably can't, or you need someone to help you get that barbell back up to the rack position or up onto the rack stuff or take the weights all the way off. So a yoke is a great place for this because basically that's what that does. That is just applying a ton of weight onto your back. And since it's loaded on the ground, it's easier to just like, you only have to lift it like an inch or two, and then you're just walking with it. And it's very much about bracing your midline and your core and trying to breathe with all this pressure kind of coming down on you. So that's a good place to do it. A super heavy sandbag, heavy sandbag front carry. If you can load up, uh, whatever, hundred to 200 pounds from the ground, get it to your lap, Get it to your chest and then walk with it. It's a very similar feeling in that intra-abdominal, in that bracing. It's going to be pressing down against your skeletal system, so your muscles are going to have to kind of push back on it. So that's another really great place to do that. Another thing that I actually have done, which seems a little silly when I'm going to talk about this, but it would be like an isometric up. Push against the wall. So an isometric is just like a plank, right? Like not moving. Concentric is pressing forward. Eccentric is the lowering. Isometric is just static. So doing like a static push against a wall (laughs) would be a really good way just to kind of get that pressure and push as hard as you possibly can for five or ten seconds and just really push the wall and try to move it. And like then like switch your plant leg. But that like it's not going to be about your legs on that. It's about your that pressure that you're feeling, uh, throughout your upper body and your torso, just like pushing the shit out of a wall and <laughs> try to push that thing over Daria brick wall, run right through it. So that's like what, those are a couple of examples of how I would piece together the things with my actual, uh, in like actual strength training. And then when it comes to the like compromised work, when you're kind of pushing everything together, I would probably lean on some sort of combination of the, of the two. Um, so maybe like a doing something like doing like lunges, but then before you go out for your run, or like then carrying a sandbag or making some sort of awkward hold position. I think like heavy camp sandbag carry heavy yoke carry on your chest or back and then going for a run, I think would be another really good way to simulate the way that this feels because uh, running after it, uh, running after the sled push is a different feeling than any other stations. And mostly because of the restricted blood flow that you have throughout your entire body basically. And also because of just like extreme bracing and, uh, how hard it makes it to breathe and how hard it is to uh, get the blood flow throughout your body. And they kind of come out woozy (laughs) and you kind of need, and like, there's nothing else that's really like that. Like you're coming out of the lunges. It, it feels bad, but it's mostly overall energy because of where it is. And just that your legs are just then beat up. It's not like you can't breathe. It's just like, you can't really move. (laughs) You're just like wobbly in your legs. So I would, I would kind of, them together with some sort of like biking, rowing and uh, sandbag carry, yoke carry um, complex. So hope that works and push a wall, see what happens. Next one is sub for a skier. This one's probably a little bit more common for uh, athletes who are training for these events and also pretty important. Like it's another thing I've done the same thing that I've done for the sled that I've done for the the skier that I've done for the sled where I've gone out of my way. The gym doesn't have a skier. I don't join it. If it's like, if they don't have both things, that's like, uh, I'm just not going to happen. The skier is very, very important to have. And if you can't get there, sometimes like you should probably figure out a way to get on the skier. (laughs) Like you're just missing out a huge piece of both these events. It seems less important for high rocks since it's so early. And generally it's more of like a trap than anything else for high rocks, but in a deck of fit, it's like smack in the middle and it matters. And if you're not going to be able to ski well or efficiently or fast, you're really going to reduce your uh, total like ability to do well <laughs> so uh if you don't have a gear like find one but if that's just again not within the, like your uh, your resources there's a couple of ways we can kind of figure this out so the the main sub that you'll see people do is like having some sort of bands and then like practicing the movement with like bands on a, a, a pull-up rig this is OK, <laughs> I think this is OK just to learn the movements. But in terms of the power production that you need, the bands, it's uh, just not going to work like you like you need to really drive down through your hips and and be aggressive, like way more aggressive than you would be pulling those bands. If you're pulling those bands like as aggressive as you're pulling the skier, like I would be worried that they, they they'd probably bounce, bounce you back up because of how hard you're pulling them down, moving the mechanics. And you're just not going to be able to do um, enough of that to really get into the energy development area that you need, like just like how fast, how long, but where the bands could work is again, just learning the mechanics of it. So driving your butt down, snapping your hips closed and then finishing with your arms that can be practiced on the bands. So I would use the bands much more like a drill than a actual like way to get better at these so we'll probably take this is very similar stance with the ski that we did with the sled and in, in terms of like patching things together so what i would probably do for this is sub just the row or the bike and then some sort of hip closer which would be a lot most most ab exercises right so uh with the row we open our hips So let's talk about the mechanics real quick right and just a way to kind of break this down and row can also help with the ski mechanics if you really understand rowing mechanics you just kind of have to flip them on its head flip them on their head and then you end up in the correct like ski mechanics so when you're rowing you press your legs through the pedals right you press with your legs and then you open your hips and then you close and then you pull with your arms in that sequence, right? Not doing one until the other one's done. If you're doing any of them out of order, you become less efficient and less powerful. So it's drive through the legs. Then once your knees are kind of out of the way, the handles You swing, your hips open. And when those cut and those hips swing open, you just lightly pull with your arms to your chest and then repeat that. Then straight line with the handles back to the, the fan drive through your legs, swing with your hips, close with your, uh, pull with your arms. That's it. It's not like a pull with your arms first, a swing with your back. You see that a lot people opening with their back a little bit, uh, first, or just like having, or pulling too early in the, the thing gets all wobbly. The chain gets all wobbly. So when we're talking about the ski, it's in terms of the order where of your body parts, it's the same. It's like legs, hips, arms, but just instead of pushing your legs, Pushing against the pedals to, uh, like to, to uh, f- extend your knees. That's the word I was looking for. So you, you push against pedals to extend your knees. At this, you're driving your feet down into the ground and flexing at your knee and dropping your hip down. Right. So your hip. So your butt drops down. Your knee then flexes. And once you're in that position, then you close at your hip. You. Uh, flex at your hip again with the row you extend so you open up with a ski you fold down and then at the very end that's when you finish with your arms you snap your arms down as opposed to pulling so you kind of press your arms down push with your triceps and your lats where the row is a pull so again driving your driving your feet down to flex at your knee snapping your hips forward to flex at your hips and then pressing with your uh, triceps to finish it out. So that's where the bands can be helpful if at all. And then doing some sort of hip closer to Im- improve your power on the, uh, on that like hip closing, closing part. So that would be something like a GHD sit up, uh, toes to bar VFs, most ab exercises, honestly, like that are focused around like your hip flexors and just like the closing of your hips there. That would probably be the best way to kind of develop the, the Some strength in that specific area. I like toes to bar because you can get a little lats in there as well, um, but you're limited a lot of times through your grip and just like your ability to do that. GHD sit ups are great. You might want to build yourself up to them because they're extremely damaging in your midline and core, and you'll be so sore when you do that, but then you'll get really sick abs if you stick with them for a while. Things like V ups, weighted V ups, I think are really helpful with that too like in things that are going to help build in your abs, even something like a uh, cable crunch, I think could be helpful here where you are going to be focusing on how hard you can close at your hips in terms of energy development. I would probably just stay on the rower sub everything with that is ski with the row. It's not ideal, but again, it can help you understand the mechanics of the, ski but just flipping it right like if you have a good run if you have a good row form you should be able to understand how to have good ski form but just practicing both of them back and forth um is helpful uh, or just being able to like conceptualize so maybe being on the rower and then going to the bands and then kind of practicing that movement on the bands is probably going to be your best bet in terms of developing energy probably just the rower <laughs> it's it's i mean it the their antagonist muscle group so it's not going to help build specific endurance in those areas but it's just going to help build an overall engine that is what's going to be most needed for all these events so i would say stick on the rower a little bit more and just practice with the the bands in terms of like the mechanics of things all right so those are two things if you don't have those uh, you should go find the sled and the ski but if you don't have them that's fine so now that we are next question so now that we are into more of the off season and OCR, it's kind of turning that way. Like hybrid season kind of just seems to be ramping up now as OCR season is kind of dwindling off. We still have some of the championship races coming up, but um for age groupers, there's not it, that, that season's pretty much over. Like the elite season still has uh a national series race, and there is a the world championship race. So if you're an age grouper going to Abu Dhabi for the world championships. Um, this might not be ideal for you, but something to kind of think about. We're talking about some um, hypertrophy training for OCR while trying to stay fast. And I talked about this uh, to a certain extent on uh, the last episode I was on the running public, maybe three or four weeks ago, we spent some time talking about how to gain muscle and not just get like super slow. And mostly the way that people do that, that is accomplished (laughs) by getting to is just like not running or just like not putting in any type of quality efforts of running and just focusing specifically on strength to help build muscle, because that's like the number one focus of you. And like, that is a way to do it for sure. You will definitely maximize the amount of time that it takes to get bigger and stronger. If you are doing less aerobic work, like no doubt, like you'll definitely get stronger faster if you do it that way. But ultimately the main goal of getting stronger is to be strong and be fast. Like there's not really a place in any of these sports where the strength is going to outweigh your endurance. So taking a break from endurance training to improve your uh, body composition or to get bigger is like, isn't, is less than ideal. And it shouldn't, I would really steer people clear of that completely. Only place that it, like maybe if you're like a CrossFitter and you want to be a like games level competitor, then you could really take away from the conditioning just to get huge. And like the running is so minimal there that it, like you can take a hit. So when you watch CrossFitters, when they run, they all kind of run the same <laughs> they're like all not that fast. And, but and it's just like huge and kind of clunky and, you know, but that's the, that's the body type that they need to perform at the highest level of that sport. We're not like that. We need to have that endurance present all of the time so if you really were interested in some hypertrophy training getting bigger hypertrophy is like when you put muscle on then i would like there's a couple steps to this one not negotiable is a caloric surplus to get bigger you need to eat more and usually 300 i would start like 350 to 500 extra calories over what you're uh, exerting each day is going to be a place where you can put on mass. So this is going to take a little bit of tracking to understand like how much you're eating and how much working out you're doing. Things to consider is your workouts, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So basically, how much you're walking around, how like are you sanitary, are you sitting around all day at your job, or are you, you know, laying brick and and that's like what you're doing uh, in between. That needs to be accounted for as a huge part of our caloric. Uh, equation is what we're doing when we're not working out. So those two things, and then so considering those two things, and then also your, your current size and weight will kind of factor into how much calories you're burning and then putting 350 to 500 calories per day over that amount, not just like eating 300 or 350 to 500 more calories than you're eating now, because chances are you're probably not at maintenance, probably floating. You probably are somewhere in between each day. Like, you're hungry, you eat. You're not hungry, you don't eat. Most of the time, I've found that endurance athletes are probably under a little bit, so you're probably going to be eating a lot more than what you uh, think you should be eating. And when you start doing that, monitoring your weight consistently is crucial. I think if you're just checking it once a week, twice a week even, I, don't, I think is too infrequent. You don't really know what's happening in the ups and downs of what's going on. And this should be a long-term, long-term goal when it comes to... Uh, fat loss or muscle gain is what's happening every single day. And just like knowing that you have weeks to go. So if are checking it once a week, based on what you did before, how much, how much water, how much water or liquids you drank or how hot it was, how much you're sweating, like uh, just based on what the activity was, your weight probably fluctuate two to f- four pounds in the morning. And what you need to do is kind of take an average. I like a 10 day average. I think that's a good place to get a good idea of how much things are actually changing. Once that 10 day average starts to shift in either direction, you'll know that you're either uh, eating at target. So your weight is going up. If it's not moving at all, you got to eat more. And if you're, and if the uh, scale is going down, you're not eating enough. <laughs> it's kind of that simple and you can do it into You can be really, dialed in and and tracking everything that you're eating or you can just do it intuitively, right? Like like yesterday I ate a bowl of this. Now I'll eat a bowl and a half of it and see what happens. could be that simple, but making sure you're monitoring your weight consistently is super important. And then with that, I would lift two to three times per week and be in that hypertrophy rep range. So that's going to be like eight to 20 reps or so is what's going to be helpful to kind of put on muscle. So I would do compound lifts at that, squats, deadlifts, bench press, strict press, incline press, bent row, big lifts that are going to create a lot of muscle damage. Once you create that muscle damage, the, the body, uh, you know, the, the energy that you're – the extra energy that you're taking in the caloric surplus will help rebuild that muscle bigger and stronger. And that's where you really are going to get a, a huge boost in your strength if you do make that – the actual muscle – bigger. <laughs> it's more to, it's more to work with. You can get stronger for sure without getting bigger, but to get, but to surpass where your current strength ability levels are, you're going to have, have to get a little bit bigger. So two or three lifts, uh, lifting sessions per week. I've found some great success with two. Uh, if you did three, uh, you probably accelerate your yeah. muscle gain even further, but I think two is enough because you are going to want to do a lot of aerobic work here. I would do five to seven days of some sort of aerobic work with the strength work and that could just be easy running easy rowing easy biking and then if you wanted to have some sort of quality work i think one like threshold tempo hill workout per week is enough during this kind of base building off season phase when strength gain is your focus Another important piece to this that you can work on that could be more optional is doing some sort of mechanical work and mechanical work. I mean, doing like fast sprints and drills. Uh, I mentioned the crossfitters or just like any like jacked person you see can be a little stiff. There's a fluidity that is lost and your flexibility can definitely take a hit when you're putting on muscle. And if your body type is changing, you're going to have to like teach it to move in a specific way that you want. So doing different mechanical work is pretty important when it comes to adding when you're adding muscle, just so you're not losing efficiency as a runner. So I would do that once a week probably. And this could be super simple. It could be five to six 60 meter sprints as fast as you possibly can. And then accompanying it with some sort of speed drills, a skips, B skips, uh, those type of of things, a quick feet type of working out and just kind of working on your mechanics, just so that you don't lose that as you are putting on muscle. And that could also in the beginning it definitely can uh inflict a lot of muscle damage, so it could probably boost your hypertrophy because you are hammering your legs a little bit more with these sprints if you've ever done if you've ever if you've done a sprint workout as an adult, you know you'll get sore it's not not the same, not the same as running distance not at all so that that would be an area that i would I would look to improve on as well as just making sure that you're spending time working at those high end mechanical areas, as opposed to just doing everything super slow. And you'll have space because if your focus is going to be gain, you're not going to be doing as much quality running work just because like for no other, I mean, I'm sure you could, but just because the quality run work will probably hurt your lifting ability and will just probably make it less enjoyable. You still could do it, but it might just, Suck a little bit more, (laughs) so I would do one quality run workout, one mechanical workout, two to three lifts, making sure you're eating at a caloric surplus, and also just monitoring what's happening. Get on the scale every single day, every other day at least. And there is like a little bit of, man, I really don't like looking at the scale. Like I hate this thing. I hate these numbers, but it's just data that you need to take in, and it gives you an idea if it's heading in the right direction. If you put weight on it once a week, that makes it worse. I found like if it's once a week and you're waiting for this like shift to happen it you could step on that scale and it might say the exact same as what it did last week. But during the week it was like up every single day. And then maybe that just one day it was down or opposite. It was down every single day. And that one day it just happened to be up But your 10 day, but your average of all everything that you are taking is in a desired direction or non-desired direction. So get on that scale more often. Just make sure you know what's happening. If you are looking to go through some body composition changes and just do it. Just get at it. Just start eating. Eat, eat, eat. All right. Cool. Made it an hour. If you're listening all the way through, truly appreciate it. Thank you so much to everybody who did contribute questions here. Love kind of diving into these and, and giving answers that I hope are helpful for you when it comes to your training. So if you got a race coming up, make sure you come check me out at Fit in new jersey i will be there love saying hello love, love chatting with everybody who does listen to the podcast i'll be there for uh saturday and sunday doing deca fit and deca strong so hope to see you guys out there and thanks again for listening thanks for contributing to the questions make sure you check out race Rain podcast running public all those other good places all right talk to you soon